resume our study through the book of Luke. I know I've done a couple of topical messages, but we're going to pick up in Luke 8, um, and we're going to take a look at something that, I, I don't know, it just brought me a lot of comfort, and I pray it does the same for you. Uh, last service, I said that was the case, and I, I pray it ministers to your heart. Um, so if you have a Bible, open up to Luke chapter 8. If you don't, there'll be folks walking down the aisles with stacks of Bibles, and just raise your hand, they'll give it to you. Luke chapter 8. Before I, I have you um, stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, just a, a, an introduction to it, because it's been a while since we've been in this passage, and I want to bring you up to speed. Um, so it'll be somewhat of a lengthy introduction before we stand, but I, I was, um, it, it's been a week of trial. Um, one of the reasons why I went back to Montana was trying to resolve, a, it's a major ministry across the country that's going through some difficult times and went back to see if I could be of any help and met with their board and um, just doing some things there. And then, um, you know, kind of city stuff, uh, facing some storms in relation to that and um, just trying to navigate that as best you can. And then you always have family stuff and and then uh, people in the congregation. Uh, we, we had uh, you know, a lovely couple, uh, uh, married for over 60 years and one of them went to be with the Lord and you know that's devastating losing your best friend and a uh, number of struggles within the fellowship just trying to connect and you, you see in life and life constitutes you're either you're either going into a storm or coming out of one that's kind of the 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 reader's digest version of life and and some of the storms are self-induced uh, God puts you in a storm because of disobedience but some of the storms, quite honestly, uh, you're going into the storm because you're being obedient, which is, that's a hard one to fathom. Uh, maybe not for you guys, but I, you know, and then you're in the middle of it and you're like, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> I'm being obedient and where are you? And we're drowning here, you know, help us, Lord. Um, and I, I was comforted because I was coming back from Montana, just kind of looking at the text and I'd been reading a number of books on uh, natural religion, which is something that our founding fathers embraced, and we've been covering that on Thursday nights. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring that into the text itself. But just to give you a refresher, chapter 8 begins with what they call uh, the parable of, of the sower. Do you remember that, parable of the sower? And the sower is the guy who throws the seed. And do you remember that the seed is the word of God? And I changed the name of the parable of the sower and I changed it to the parable of the soils. Do you remember that? So I could blame you? Okay. Because the sower is the one who throws the seed. Do you remember that? And you always evaluate the pastor on how he throws the seed. Did you see how his leg went up and how he was smiling when he did it? And all the illustrations he used and his voice and, you know, what he, whatever. It, that has no bearing on the condition of the soil and where the seed lands. That's your job, not mine. And there's four types of soil that Jesus expressed. He said there's the hard ground, and it, the soil lands, and the birds come and eat it because it doesn't penetrate. And there's some of you in here going, when's lunch? That, that's that hard soil, right? Why did they bring me here? I want to go home. Hard soil. Uh, shallow soil is you, you, the seed lands, uh, but it's, there's a base of rock underneath it, and it lands, and then it, it sprouts up real quick. But, but the minute that the trials come, it just withers and fades because it, the roots don't go down deep. And then there's the third type of soil where it lands in, in solid soil. There's no rock underneath it. It takes root, starts to come up, but 
It's surrounded by weeds, which are the cares and the concerns of this world, and it just crushes you, and you don't become fruitful. But there is a quarter of the soil, 25%, that is prepared to receive the, the seed, the word of God lands in that soil, and it produces a crop 60, 100-fold, so it begins to feed others and multiply itself. And, and so as a minister, I'm throwing seed out, and only 25% are going to really be fruitful. And that's, that's a little bit discouraging, so I'm just going to go home. Well, what you come to realize is the only difference between the fruitful soil and the other three quarters of soil, which is the hard, shallow, and weed choked, is if you want to make the the 75% that isn't productive, if you want to make it productive, it needs one thing. If you want to make it productive, it needs one thing. If you want to make it productive, it needs one thing. It needs to be plowed. And that's the trials of life. Storm you're coming in or going out of, and that's the plowing And it reveals a faith because you come to a a circumstance in life where it's beyond your ability to control it. And you have two options. You can try to figure it out yourself or you can cry out and ask God to help you. And that's where our founding fathers said, especially in Romans 1, it says, all creation speaks of the glory of God. Natural religion is this idea is it doesn't matter if you're you're Catholic, Protestant, Jewish, Mormon, uh, Muslim, Hindu, agnostic, atheist, it doesn't matter. We're all on this earth bound by what we call natural religion. If the scripture is true that says all creation speaks of the glory of God, we're all under this idea of natural law. And our founder said the laws of nature and nature's God. So it doesn't matter if, if, if you're an agnostic or you're a Christian, you're still bound by the law of gravity. We operate in the context of these laws that govern our universe. And, and there are laws. And if you don't believe that there are laws that govern us, physical laws, then you're not going to do very well in science. And probably people won't hire you. You don't see the laws of mathematics, the law of gravity, the law of thermodynamics. You, you just ignore those and you're not going to be very successful in life. And we're all governed by these regardless of where we are. And if we apply reason... We come to understand that there is a designer. Now, if we want to apply passion over reason, passion over reason, this is where the difficulty lies. Passion, as Aristotle said, there's, there's two virtues. There's two virtues to every human being. You have a doing virtue and a thinking virtue. So the doing virtue is the, the passions of your life. Everyone wakes up in the morning, uh, usually we wake up hungry. Uh, we go through the course of the day, we experience hunger. And, and that's a driving passion for all of us. And that passion, when you wake up, you're, you're ravenous. And a lot of us have experienced that, you're ravenous. And you want to go for the easiest food. That's why fast food makes a fortune on us, because we don't want to prepare, because we want to eat now. And, and, and they want to make things that appeal to us. And, and that's... That's a doing virtue. A thinking virtue is different. A thinking virtue applies reason. I'll give you an example. One of my favorite foods in all the world is cold pizza. And a lot of folks don't agree with it, but I like it because I love pizza in general. But when it's cold, you don't have to worry about scalding the roof of your mouth and it's a quicker delivery system. And you can just and just eat it. And typically, you have cold pizza because you had pizza the night before. And I'm talking about a good pizza, one that survives refrigeration and doesn't get all weird. 
have you ever lost a McDonald's french fry in the car and you look down and then like three years later and it's, you're like, wow, it looks the same. <laughs> I'm not talking about that kind of pizza. But you have, you have this, you, you eat the pizza the night before so you get a carbo load and it's filled with all kinds of cheeses and fats and oils and you put, you know, your meat lovers thing on it and it's just, it's deadly and then you got the carb intake and it's just going right to your gut. And you wake up with this carb overload, and so it immediately creates a hunger for more of it because your body's craving just that, that easy fuel, and you're looking for carbohydrates. And so you open up your refrigerator being hungry from having consumed so much the night before, and then you see the cold pizza. And you start to kind of be drawn to it, and you just start eating it for breakfast. And that ruins your whole day because you've just again hit yourself with a carb load that requires an immediate nap following it. It's the similarity of going to IHOP for a stack of pancakes with syrup. And you're like, yeah. And you're just mowing on that with the butter. <laughs> Let's go home. Uh, and then you eat that, and, and I don't know why they call it IHOP. They should call it, I got to take a nap, is what they should call it. And then you, you, you have that, and that's, that's a doing virtue. You're drawn to that simple carbohydrate. Your body wants it. It's a passion. I got to have it now. But then you see the results of it. Your day's not productive. You're taking longer naps. You're gaining weight. You're struggling. A thinking virtue applies to reason. And this is, this is where when you get to 54 years of age and you've gone through the swing of weight and all this other stuff and you used to be an athlete and then you became a dad and then you, you, you got the dad bod and, and you've gone through all this and then you get older and your joints start to hurt and you're like, you know, I got to shed some of this. I'm not trying to lose weight. I'm trying to discard it. Because when you lose something, you're looking for it, right? And people say, how much weight have you lost? I have no idea. I haven't weighed myself, and I can't remember how long. I don't care what the number says. I want to feel better. And to do that, I had to make some reason choices. I had to do some thinking virtues. How do you lose weight? Eat less, exercise more. Is there another way? I love food, so I have to find a diet that is not, is not quantitatively judged, but it's qualitatively judged because I, I consume a lot. I just, it's, it's one of my passions, so I have to figure out reason with passion. I'm working through that. So I picked a keto diet because I like meat and proteins, and so I have to monitor my carbohydrates. And so when I wake up in the morning, I want that pizza. I love pizza. It's the worst thing you can have on keto. I'm looking at that going, got to have that, and then reason kicks in. You know, that pizza's not going to taste as good as thin feels, whatever. Uh, and so you make whatever meal is necessary to maintain that ketosis, that ketoacidosis, where you're in that realm where you're burning fat as opposed to burning cheap fuels like carbohydrates. And then you start losing weight, and you're feeling better about yourself, and you don't need as much sleep, and you start to reason and see how this all operates, and you're, you're more productive in your day. That is the difference between a doing virtue and a thinking virtue. And I'll explain all this in a moment. All of us are given the capacity for reason. And that's what separates us from all the animals in the world. And the idea of reason is this, this idea of applying words and understanding and morality so that we do the right thing. And we operate in the context of the laws of nature and nature's God, as our founder said. And, and I'll give you an example. Uh, my granddaughter is two years old. And she's adorable. And she owns me. Absolutely owns me. 
And when she speaks, she puts full sentences together, and she's just so cute. And she says my name, Obi, and I just melt. Just I reach in my wallet, what, anything. Up to half my kingdom. No, take it all. And she's adorable. And she, she giggles, and she laughs, and she knows how to look at you. It's just so sweet. Well, Liberty was born two years ago, and so two years ago I was given a Valentine's Day gift from my wife, which was a, a Great Dane puppy. And the two of them came into my life simultaneously. The Great Dane is now taller than I am when he jumps up on my shoulders. He's got his own zip code. He's hugantic. He's a horse, and he's a, he, I call him Caballo. I mean, he's a, he's a horse. And... And I watched before my eyes as he'd sit on my lap or in the morning when he'd wake up, he had grown. It was like alien, just stretching and growing and just, I hurt because I'm growing. And he was big. And I watched him early on learn how to, to be house trained. And he'd, he'd tilt his head. And he would communicate. And I thought it was fascinating. He'd communicate. But he would use the same communication skill for a, a multitude of different needs. And he'd just walk up to me and go, and I'd have to discern, are you thirsty? Are you hungry? You want to go to bed? Are you, you know, and, and he, do you, have to, do you have to go potty? And, and he, he's like, I'm trying to figure out what it is you're doing, but I'm trying to tell you what I need to be doing. And, and he, he follows me everywhere, but the one communication technique is tilted head. Now, he does help me when he's thirsty because he's tall and he can drink out of the faucets in the bathroom and the, and the bathtub. And he'll walk over to the sink and just stand there. Like, you can turn this on? And you turn it on and the thing just drinks like copious amounts. And then I shut it off and it's dripping and I got to wipe him off. And he, you know. So... I have a communicating relationship, but one thing I noticed with the two entities that came into my life is one just tilts his head and the other has learned to do something only unique to human beings. One has learned how to communicate through the spoken word. Obi, I love you. Now, when she says I love you, she is transmitting a metaphysical concept, an emotion. Dogs operate by passion. They, you, you, they don't like it when you pull their ears. And I love to do that to Dutch because he, he starts to realize it's a game, but it's an irritating game. I pull it, rah, 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 rah. And finally he goes, I've had enough of this. I wanted attention, but not that kind. So he, he, he gets hungry, he, he, and all these are passions for him. But for Liberty, she now has intellect. And she can say to her older brother, Oliver, that's not nice. I've never heard my dog ever communicate that to me. I, 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 the, the, their dogs are affectionate and things of that sort, but not to the capacity where they can discern right and wrong. And they can't communicate it. So what happens with human beings on this earth and the laws of nature, nature's God, is we gather together in the highest form of community. And the highest form of community is where you get the word common unity, community. We gather in the highest form of community, and you know what that is? It's called politics. Some of you are like, wait, what? Oh, one, good. <laughs> politics is the highest form of community because it combines two things. It combines morality with sociability. You're coming together to say, how do we live in unison together? How do we live together? How do we dwell together? 
And that's, it starts with a family unit, and then you got a village, and then you got a community, and then you got a city, a polis. And how do we stop from killing each other, and how do we not steal from each other? We have to talk about it. That's not nice. We learn that in a family. You can't have that. That's not fair. We hear, hear all these from two-year-olds. My favorite, that they learn right out of the chute. No! You're like, oh, wow, I didn't teach you that. <laughs> and so God gave humanity, created in his image, the ability to communicate by the spoken word. Why do I say all this long introduction? It's real simple. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. And the word was with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt with man. Word. Logos. Logos is also the concept of thinking and reasoning. It's the same word in the Greek. And so there's, there's absolutes that govern us. And as a human being with a flawed nature, and you with, as a human being with a flawed nature, and many of you in the room are parents, we know that we give children our commandment. Don't do this. And what do they do? I'm sorry, I thought I was with people that had normal families. <laughs> what do they do? They do it. And then usually what happens, they get disciplined. Everyone has a different form of discipline. Mine was a timeout chair. They'd have to go sit in it. And they'd sit there. And you'd walk over to me and say, why are you angry? Because I shouldn't, I, I, I'm angry. I go, come on, get up, come with me. And we walk them into the bathroom. I have them step up on the Winnie, Pooh, Winnie the Pooh stool. And they step up and they're looking in the mirror and they're, I said, okay, keep looking. And I step out of the way and I go, do you see who's in the mirror? Yes, that's who you're angry at. <laughs> I told you not to do this. And I said, if you do this, this is what will happen. And you did this and this is what's happening. So the person you're angry with is not me. It's you. Oh, they smile a little bit and reconcile. Human beings are flawed. We don't obey a command. And sometimes we don't obey a command because it's not a command we really feel is worthy of obedience. The Bible says, children, obey your parents. It'll go well with you. You live long on the earth. He doesn't say that when, because we all have flawed parents, which I, looking around the room and the earth, everyone does. If you can learn to submit to a, an earthly parent, you'll have no problem submitting to an earthly boss, and then ultimately you won't have any problem submitting to a, a, a perfect God. And he wants us to understand how words matter and how obedience to commands matter. Because God says these are natural laws that doesn't matter if you believe in me or you don't, it will be revealed to you that if you obey these natural laws, you will flourish. And if you don't, you will struggle. And that's where we get the original name for God in Genesis, Elohim. He said, let us Make man in our image. He's a monotheistic God, and he's saying us, like plural. He's talking about the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, and they're unified, and yet they're diverse. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Even where we get the word university. Unified diversity, diverse realms of study, unified to glorify God and to come to understand him in his universe. As you start to understand this and study it, you come to understand the one who designed it, the one who made it. 
It doesn't matter if you're a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're a churchgoer. You're still bound by those, and that's what natural religion is. Anyone on the earth applying reason can come to understand the designer. And so that's revealed to all mankind. All creation speaks of the glory of God. You can see God in creation if you apply reason. And so what we do is we, sh- we shelve reason to in- invoke our passions. And when someone comes up to us with a reasonable argument and ours can't be defended, you know what we do? We silence them. The only way that a lie can exist is for the truth to be silenced. That's why the Bible's a dangerous book. And so we come to this place where this reason is applied, and the Bible says that the law, God's natural law, they are a school teacher to point us to Christ. You know what? Every time I obey this, this happens, and when I don't, this happens. Yes, the designer made it that way. Who is the designer? Oh, so you're going from an atheist to an agnostic. An agnostic means agnosis, without knowledge. I know there's a designer, I just don't know who he or she is. And the two great truths of the universe, there's a God and you are not him. And so now you get introduced, and this is what's called revealed knowledge. This is what is called revelatory through the scriptures. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of God. And now you start to understand a God you can't see, but you can come to know him. And you know him through his word, logos, truth. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I created you. I created you to have a relationship. I created you to have community. I created you to understand that there's right and wrong. I came to show you that this is, I'm I'm for you, not against you. I came to deliver you, cleanse you, forgive you, love you. And you're reading it, and it's touching your life. And now you make a step of faith. You make a step of faith. Now, you are prepared to receive that step of faith when your life is plowed and you're going in or out of a storm. And that's what's so fascinating is Jesus took a number of parables to reveal that and the power of his word. But that seed, that word, that logos, that truth is only as effective as the soil upon which it lands. And then it brings us to the text. And the text now begins with who is responsible to obey that word. And you're going to see that, so please stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. I'm going to pick up at verse 19. I'll read aloud if you'll just follow along silently. Luke chapter 8, starting verse 19, the scripture says, Then Jesus' mother and brothers, these are biological, biological mother, biological brothers, and for my Catholic brothers and sisters who are here, it was... um, a Catholic theologian who pointed out this is really difficult to defend the perpetual virginity of Mary based on the statement of this text. And I don't do that to insult you. I'm, I'm quoting, and I'll, I'll read to you the, the Catholic author, but I, just, I, I don't want to divide the room, but I wanted to point out this is familial. These are biological, biological mother, biological brothers. Then Jesus' mother and brothers came to Jesus and could not approach Jesus because of the crowd. And it was told Jesus by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. And Jesus answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. 
And I shared with you earlier when I touched on this passage that if I'd said that to my mother, I'd be picking up my teeth with my broken arm. A tough thing to say to your mom and to your family, but you'll see in a moment. Verse 22, now it happened on a certain day that Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. I want us to repeat in quotations what I just read. and begins with let. Are you ready? Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. Who said that? Who is Jesus? Good, you're learning. Let us cross over to the other side of the lake, and they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. The other gospel accounts say the waves got higher and higher. Others, they feared for their life. They're in absolute trauma. And they're fishermen, by the way, which means when they're saying it's bad seas and they're in danger of dying, they know what they're talking about. So it was filling with water, they were in jeopardy. Verse 24, and they came to Jesus and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we're dying, we're perishing, we're, we're, we're in trouble, we're all gonna die. And then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, where's your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. And then I'll just read a couple of verses here and the one we're going to cover next week. Then they sailed to the, to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons, not just demon, demons, for a long time. And he wore no clothes, buck naked. And he did live in a house, but in the, he didn't live in a house. He lived in the tombs. He was in the cemetery. He'd broken the chains, the other gospel account says. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and he fell before him with a loud voice. He says, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. It goes on to say, Jesus says to him, what is your name? And he, he's tormented. And he just, and he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And that was the picture. It's going to be exciting next week. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And God, I ask that you would minister to all who are present by the speaking of your word, your word which is true, logos, that uh, the soil of our hearts would be prepared to receive the seed of your word. And so God, please, I pray you do a mighty work in the lives of all who are present in the hearing of my voice. And we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a seat. What you're going to see in the remainder of this chapter is the Lord emphasizes his word and the condition of your heart to receive that word, and it all boils down to obedience because he's going to say here to his mom and to his brothers, hey, uh, my mom and my brothers are those who hear my word and obey it. Hear my word and obey it. Hear my word and obey it. You recognize his authority, you submit to that authority. And, and, and like I said, anyone who has kids, you give them authority, they hear it, they don't do it. That's a flawed human being. We've all failed in that capacity. But authority can only operate in, in, in any organization by the submission to that. And so we're going to see that Jesus emphasizes this obedience to the word. You just can't be a hearer. You've got to be a doer. And to emphasize that, he shows the power of his word. The power of his word has control and power over all of the physical world as he calms this storm. It stuns them. They're actually beyond their ability to try to come up with a solution. They're fishermen, and they can't steer the boat. They can't take care of anything. They didn't have a problem with him sleeping because they're fishermen. We'll take it from here. This is one thing we can do better than you. And now they're overwhelmed, and they call on him, and he's like, 
So you see that, and then they get off the boat, and they're like, oh, praise God, terra firma, and they're kissing the ground, and then this demoniac runs up, blah, 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 and they're like, oh, and he's naked, and he's got chains. <laughs> it's like kind of going into L.A., and, and he did, blah, 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 blah. And so you, you come through this, and you, and you see this happening, and all this stuff going on, and this is, this is where he speaks to this person, and immediately, he, not only does he have control over the natural elements, now he has control over the supernatural elements. Whether you believe in spiritual realm or not, he has control over that, boom. And how does he have control? By his word. And then it goes further in the chapter, and you're gonna see a woman with an issue of blood and a, a girl that's died. And he, 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 it's this woman, he speaks, and she's healed. So he has power over sickness by his spoken word. He has power over death by his spoken word. This word is pretty amazing. This word is something that should be honored and obeyed. And he, he commands in his word, honor those in positions of authority over you. He lays this out. He lays this order and this structure for this community, for common unity, reason. And so this revealed natural law then comes to this idea of the revelatory law where we come to faith. And all of a sudden this morality is in place in a culture and we begin to flourish. Now there's storms in life, and, and I'll get to that in a moment, but I want to I add this one last thing. This was the main statement Jesus said. He said, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. If I were to say to my son Daniel, stand up, he heard me, but obviously he didn't do it. No, I'm just picking on you, boy. I know you would. He, he hears me, but he didn't do it. In the Hebrew mindset, hearing and obeying are the same thing. We've disconnected that in our culture. I heard you, but I'm not doing what you said. I heard you, but I'm not doing what you said. Because we evaluate it based on how we want to do it, and we say, well, does it benefit me? And then we'll figure it out one way or another. But the Lord is, is pointing out that hearing and doing are synonymous. That my mother and my brothers are those who hear my word and do it. And this is where we learn clearly that God calls us to submit to him. You know, I am not a perfect father. I know that's shocking. I'm not a perfect husband. But interestingly enough, in the, in the 29 years of marriage with Michelle and I'm 20 plus years with Daniel and Molly and Kelly and Natasha and Michael, through the span of the life of my kids, they are, they are very obedient children. Um, and, and there's times where the, the command I've made of them or, or you know, the, the, what I've asked of them is, is difficult and they don't understand it and they don't like it, but they do it. And... And you work through that process, but what I've come to realize is now he's not, and I'm sorry, Daniel, I know you don't like when I use illustration, but this is important because you're going through this right now. And he doesn't mind illustration. I, my, I told my family I just don't like to do it, but I can't help it. He's just so cool. Um, Danny is now in the military, and, and he's, he's having to, to receive orders. And, and it's a lot easier to receive a, an order from somebody who has the markings of of. Of, a, of an officer because he's learned how to do it with his father. And what he did learn early on is he's not submitting to me who's flawed and he's not submitting to the officer who's flawed. He's submitting to the Lord who's telling them to submit 
to his father and his mother and this officer. See, if, if you submit to an individual because you're fearful of the individual, you're not submitting to the Lord. That becomes cultic. If God has called you to submit, that's when you do it. And so this whole picture of what's being laid out here, Jesus makes it real simple. He says, my mother and my brothers are those who hear my word and do it. And as he lays this out, he then says, everyone is subject to that, even my immediate biological family. And Mary is the one who understood this, his mother, because Mary, the very first miracle in the book of John at the wedding at the, uh, in Cana, she's the wedding coordinator, and they're out of wine. And she goes up to her son, she says, they're out of wine. She's not asking him as a human being. She's asking him as God. Can you do some of that hocus pocus and do something? Because we're out of wine. (laughs) And his response to her was similar to this one. He says, woman, what what does your request have to do with me? Can you imagine saying that to your mother? Maybe you didn't have a mom like that. My mom, yeah. No, I did. Uh, Anyways. Woman, what does, what does this have to do with me? And she turns to the servants and she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. <laughs> and so the Lord turns to the servants. He says, uh, fill the cisterns with water. They're like, okay. And they fill it to the brim. You know, somebody just doing a half-hearted would do that. I got water in it. It's kind of full. I thought you'd, I know you said fill it, but I, I, didn't, mean, I didn't know you meant fill it. No, they, they took the, the, the command to its logical, they filled it. And, and they're the ones with the faith because they're the ones who have to obey his word. And now Jesus says, pour it in the pitchers and go serve the guests. And they're like, what? You don't hear that in the text. So these servants go over and they pour it in and they've got a pitcher of water. And the guests are out, bring some more wine. And these servants are walking out, and they're slaves. So if they mess with any of these people, they're in jeopardy. And they're taking him at his word. They're walking up to folks, oh, you're out of wine. Lo, let me get that for you. <laughs> and it's coming out wine. And they're like, Whoa. And you know the story, it was the best wine. It was better than the wine they'd served previous. You usually get them drunk and then you serve the cheap, you know, Boone's Farm. But they did, they went all out. In, inception wine or whatever you call it, I don't know. And, and, and that's what Mary said. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. She understood that. And now, now he's calling her on it. And she knew he was God. She did the Magnificat and all these other things. And so this comes to that and, and it's laid out. And then it, And then he says to his disciples immediately after this, it says, now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. He said to them, and I had you repeat this. He said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And I asked you who said it. You said, Jesus. I said, who is Jesus? You said, God. Right? Okay, thank you. Tough crowd. There it is. Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. He didn't say, let's get in the boat and see if we make it. 
He didn't say, uh, you know what? These crowds are really getting on my nerves. Can we just float out a ways and avoid the crowds? Because at this point, he's getting swamped by people. He doesn't say that. And, he, and, and what, what's interesting is there's tens of thousands, if not more than that, surrounding him, pressing in. And the only freedom is anyone who has a boat can get on the lake and he can get a little peace and quiet. And he's tired. And he turns to the disciples. There's 12 of them. He says, get in the boat. Let us cross over to the other side, us, you guys. And you can imagine them going, I'm in the boat with Jesus. That's right. And just stepping in. Just, I'm going to sit down right here next to him. And, you know, none of you are coming, but we're very special. Because we're obviously elite and very far more, well, anyways, you all stay there. We're going with Jesus on the lake. And you get in that boat and they start heading out. And he said, let us cross over to the other side. And as this begins to happen, um, and, and the Sea of Galilee, can, can we... Are you guys ready for this video? The Sea of Galilee, before you show it, the Sea of Galilee is, is 13 miles long, about eight miles wide in its width, greatest width, but they say where this occurred, it's about a five-mile distance. It's probably Tiberias to, to um, Capernaum, and, and they're, they're getting ready to cross over. And, and this, this video I'm going to show you, it's, um, well, first of all, the Sea of Galilee is below sea level. And, and as a result, when the winds come in, and the scripture says the winds kicked up, when the winds come down on them, that's what they're doing. They're coming down. They're coming in from uh, the Mediterranean. They're coming down from the Golan Heights, and they're coming down onto the Sea of Galilee. And with a moment's notice, it turns into rough seas. We were there one year with a, um, a senator, and we were crossing the Sea of Galilee, and it was, it was really rough on the way out. I mean, like nauseatingly rough. And we get out to the middle and it's cold and everyone's shivering. We get out to the middle and it just calms down. And there was hail coming down. It was crazy. Hitting the boat. And then we get out to the middle and do, and the rainbow. I'm like, oh, this is biblical. And everyone's like, are you going to walk on water? I'm like, yeah, you know, maybe I will. But I've seen the Sea of Galilee affected by these raging winds and it happens at a moment's notice. Take a look. This is just a video real quick. We ready? There it is. That's... That's just the Sea of Galilee, real simple. And, and at the end of the video, it's only uh, another 57 seconds, you're going to see a portion of the sea. And this is just a windstorm in a very clear day. Uh, it just kicked up. It's like a Santa Ana wind. And then look over to the right. It'll scan over to the right. That's the Golan Heights. And look how calm it is right here. La, 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 it's so pretty right here. I'm going to have my devotion in this calm area. That's good. We can get rid of it. That, that's a visual for you. Now, one of my favorite things when we're on the Sea of Galilee is to go visit this ancient boat that they found when the Sea of Galilee was at, a, at, at record drought levels. And so the lake had receded to historic levels and there were two guys walking out looking for artifacts on this receding shoreline and they came across a rusted nail and they're like, this is, there's gotta be something else and they're digging and they hit a, a block of wood and they dig more and they're this is a boat. And they know that the rains are gonna come and they know that the, the sea's gonna increase and it's never been this low before so they had to get some archeologists out there there was a woman who did it and she developed this whole thing so that even when the water would come back, this would be surrounded by dry land, they could excavate it but they had to figure out the minute that the wood was exposed to the air, it would start to rot oxidization, I guess it is. And so they, they filled it with foam and then they lifted it out so it wouldn't break apart. 
And here this archaeologist woman, she says, I'm riding on a boat that hasn't been ridden, uh, had someone ridden on it in 2,000 years. And they, they float it to the museum, they restore it. You go into this museum and you see this boat that's 2,000 years old. I personally think this is the one Jesus was on, but that's me and I can't prove it. But it's the same time frame, exactly. The, the artifacts they found, you're blown away by it. And there it is. And you're looking at the size of the boat and you're thinking, seas like that, they're scared to death and it's dangerous. And they're seasoned fishermen. I'm going to show you a Rembrandt painting that has been stolen. They haven't found it yet. But this is a copy of it. And this is the, the storms on the Sea of Galilee. And it just starts to, to hammer down on them. And, um, and they're, in, they're in trouble. And what does Jesus do in the midst of it? He sleeps. But before I get to that point, I want to, I want to share with you what I said earlier. You all have heard the story of Jonah. Jonah in the belly of the whale. He was supposed to go to Nineveh and he went to Tarshish. And he didn't want to obey God because he didn't like the Ninevites and he didn't want to minister to the Ninevites and he's in complete disobedience to God. And he goes to take a boat in the opposite direction and while he's there, the storm kicks in. And this storm is a storm of disobedience. God's bringing it on his life. He's calling him to his disobedience. And many of us, I, let, let me correct that, all of us have been in a storm of disobedience. Thank you, God bless you. And he's in a storm of disobedience. He brought this on himself. God said, don't do this. He's doing it. He's looking at himself in the mirror going, that's who is responsible for this. Remember that story. And so as he's in this storm of disobedience, he finally just sees all these people who are innocent victims of his disobedience, and they're all going to die in this. And he turns to him. He says, look, throw me overboard, and the storm will stop. And they're like, yeah? And he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm in disobedience to the God of the universe. And they said, okay. So they throw him overboard, and sure enough, the storm stops. And this big fish, a whale shark, because it had to be a fish, and they say a whale, but it was a whale shark, comes up, whoop, swallows him. And they have records throughout history of whale sharks, people being swallowed, living in the belly of it. You can check it out yourself. So this whale shark swallows him, takes him down into these depths. The scripture says he was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. I, I, all you need to do is put me in there for a nanosecond. I'm like, I, I'm tapping out. I'll do what you say. I, I want to go to Nineveh. <laughs> but, but Jonah's like, I am, I am not going to Nineveh as he's being partially digested and he's living and they're going way down into multiple atmospheres and his ears are popping and then they're, you know, and he's, and he's just the smell and, the, and all that happening. And finally, after three days, three nights in the belly, he says, okay, I'm out. And the fish goes, Bleh! and just throws him up on the shores of Nineveh. And that, that had to be a sight to have a prophet partially digested going, okay, everybody, repent. <laughs> repent. So my point is this, long story, but the point is this, Jonah was in the belly of the whale, but more importantly, Jonah was in the storm, and that storm was a storm of disobedience. We're all familiar with those. But there's another storm, and this is the toughest one, and I've been with some people this week who've been through it. There's the storm that the disciples experience, and this is a storm that's brought about because of obedience. You, you obey the Lord and you find yourself in a storm. And it's getting harder and harder to be a Christian in California. You want to obey him, you're going to be in a storm. You want to apply his principles, the laws of nature, and nature's God, and these, these natural religion, these, these revealed ideas in culture, and you want to step into that culture, good luck. You're going to go into a storm of obedience. You're going to get beat up. They're going to make fun of you. They're going to ridicule you. They're going to persecute you. 
Don't consider it strange. As, as a persecuted Christ, he'll persecute you. That's how it works. And you're going to be in a storm of obedience. And we all, all we want to do in life is avoid storms. God's putting us into those storms. And he says, we're going to get over to the other side, but do what I'm asking you to do. Do this. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. Step into the culture. Make a difference. This is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to raise your family. These are the principles upon what you, I, I want you to stand. These are the things I want you to share. And you're like, okay. And then you do it, and you're in a storm of obedience. They beat you up. And, and I, I can imagine being in that storm. And, and I've been, I'm in the storm. And while you're going through it, you're just thinking to yourself, where are you? I have worked so hard for you. And they are just, they are just raining down on me. Do you understand how hard it is to be a Christian in this state? Do you know what the gas taxes are like? Everybody's leaving. They're all going to other states. Have you driven on these roads without a kidney belt? And you just, I'm the only one. It's so hard. And everybody else is on the shore. They've moved somewhere. I got in the boat with you. I am all in. And look at this. Maybe I'm just venting. <laughs> but in the course of it, you feel overwhelmed. Remember, Jonah ended up in a storm because of his disobedience, but we can get ourselves into a storm because of obedience. And that storm, just like the scripture says, the waves got higher and higher, and they just start to rage. And it becomes a little overwhelming. I guess the part that comforts me is I finally get to a place where I'm trying to figure this out, and I'm at a complete loss. Lord, I've done everything you've asked, and I just don't get what's going on right now. Well, remember, every one of the guys, well, most, the majority of the guys that got on the boat were all fishermen. They know how to handle a storm and to manage a boat. And, and they probably said to the Lord, why don't you rest? We got this. And now it is overwhelming, and they come to him, and they go, you got to do something. And he's sound asleep. And I guess, I guess the part that's kind of hard to fathom is how can he be sleeping? I mean, the storm's raging, he's sound asleep. I do love this about the text. He's tired, that's why he's sleeping. You completely see his humanity and you also are gonna see his deity all combined in one boat. Completely human, completely God. He's tired. And he's, he's probably thinking, this is really, I mean, it's just, there's nothing like a good sleep on a boat when you're rocking. And then by the time he's in the REM sleep, it's probably just doing this, but he's so tired, he's out. He's like, wham, wham, wham. And he's probably got a dream that matches it. Oh, roller coaster. Okay, okay, okay. I don't know if he'd been on one, but he knew what they were. He's God. <laughs> and he's asleep. And I, I think to myself, what happens when you're in a storm, whether in disobedience or obedience, when you're in a storm, you lay awake just like these guys are, trying to figure out a solution to it. And it brings anxiety. 
And I've met people like that. I can tell you're going through a difficult season because I can see it on your face. You've had no sleep. You're, you're just you're anxious. You're, you're agitated. And, and you, you look at that person and you say, have you gotten any rest? You look really tired. I am. I, it's been long. I, yeah, a lot of things I'm trying to, I'm, I am tired. I'm having some financial struggles, relational struggles, um, having some problems at work. Yeah, I'm, I'm really tired. And you're laying awake at night going, okay, uh, financially, we're really struggling. Maybe I could get a bridge loan for 30 days, and then I could borrow it, and then pay that off. with this, and, the, and if we could just, and I don't, and, and then the health issues. I've tried everything. I've been diagnosed, but I don't know. And I've tried the uh, acupuncture. I've tried the chiropractor. I've tried holistic medicine. I, I just don't know what I'm supposed to do. And you know why Jesus is asleep? Every one of the people I listed are all good at their practices, but they're practicing physicians, and we can call on the great physician. And we don't. He will keep the imperfect peace whose mind is steadfast on thee. And, and, and Jesus is sleeping because he understands the peace of the Father. I love Psalm 127 too. It says, in vain, it is in vain... It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, and to eat bread of sorrow. I love that idea. You rise up early and you sit up late. That just means you're not getting any sleep. And the minute your eyes close, immediately you start thinking of something and you start ruminating. And then you got to get up and then you're trying to figure it out. And you're checking your stock portfolio and you're, you're, you're looking on the internet for cures. And you're, you're trying to figure out who can I call for financial. And you're trying to see if you can borrow. And you're going through every scenario you can imagine. You're reading parenting books. You're, you're Anything. You know, vacation pamphlets to Montana, your, your, how to move from California to Texas. You're figuring all that out. You're just up, worrying. And this bread of sorrows. And, and then you try to get rest. You can't even work the next day. It's just full of heartache. And then the last portion of the passage says, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Don't you want to go to bed? I mean, really, have you accomplished anything with all your anxiety? It's overwhelming. I mean, you're, you, you can't stop this storm. You're getting plowed. And how is it that you can get rest in the middle of it? Jesus was the one who was going to be crucified. He knew what was awaiting him. How is it he's sleeping? It's real simple. When the scripture says he gives sleep to those he loves, you need to understand something. He loves you. That's that's his word. He said it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for a friend. I've come that you might have life and life more abundant. I've come to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding in the midst of the storm, whether it's in disobedience or obedience. I've come to give you a peace that surpasses all understanding to guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. The scripture says, cast your cares on me, for I care for you. You're carrying it. Give it to him and go to bed. And if you try to take it back, give it back to him. Rest. Rest. There's the Lord sleeping, and he calls us to do the same. And this idea of trusting in him. And, and the, the disciples can't handle it. And by the way... One of the ways you find rest is to reflect on the promises of God. He gave a command. What was the command he gave to them? We're all going to get over to the other side. Take him at his word. Some of the things that really help me go to sleep at night is when I'm thinking about a thousand things, I open up the Psalms and the Proverbs and I read them. 
until the promises of God saturate my heart and my mind and I just go to sleep. He gives me that peace that surpasses all understanding. Be anxious in nothing, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Good night. Rest well. Calm down. He said we're going to get to the other side. Are you afraid of death? You see, death, when I had shared with some folks this week whose loved one had passed, I said, they didn't die. They began to truly live. We're still in the storm of this fallen world, going into a storm or out of one, whether it's disobedience or obedience. It's a storm for all of us, and we're going to have that until we breathe our last on this earth. But do you take God at his word that we're going to be safely to the other side? And this, our point of birth and our point of death on a tombstone is a dash. And right now we're going through a storm, but soon we'll begin to truly live. Where there'll be no sadness, no sorrow, no weeping, no gnashing of teeth. You will be reconnected with the living God who came to set you free. Rest. He's got this. And the Lord rested. He said, I can, apart from my Father, I can do nothing. And apart from you, you can do nothing. If I'm resting in the Father, you rest in him as well. And then I have just a couple more pictures, and I love this part of it. Um, first of all, unbelief, I love this definition. Unbelief is the rejection of a promise or a command of God relevant to a particular situation you're in. This is what God said to do, and you don't do it. That's unbelief. And why? Because you're afraid. You're afraid of what? If I don't do one of these things, yeah, but God said to do this. Uh, and and I, I love the fact that finally the storm is so raging, they've realized they've created a mess, they're in a mess, they, they can't fix it, all of their reason and ability, and they have to now come to this revelatory understanding of the authority of God, that he has, com- he has command over the elements, command over sickness, command over demons, and they come to him and they cry out to him, and they say, wake up! Wake up, hello, we need your help, we're dying, we're perishing, they're panicking. And they're shaking him to wake up. And I love this meme because it's a picture of Jesus where when you see the meme, he's like, what, bro? You know, it's kind of this, he's looking at them irritated, but I like it because it looks like he just woke up from sleeping. And it, it, would, it would seem to me this would be the perfect face he'd give them when they're panicking and he's, he's getting much needed sleep and they shake him awake. This is it in the upper left-hand corner. It's like, what, what? You know, it's not like he's irritated and he, he, he didn't go, wow, this is a storm. When did this happen? He just, he wakes up, he says, you know, where's, where's your faith? What, what do you mean faith? Faith is taking me at my word. Did I not say we were going to get to the other side? Yeah. I mean, didn't I emphasize the importance of my word with that whole parable of the soils and the revealed light? I even emphasized my mom and my brothers are subject to that word. And then I gave you that word that we are going to get to the other side. He didn't wake up and go, this is a storm that is really, I mean, it is building wave after wave. And while he's looking at them going, what? That's what's bearing down on them. And I, I, I just, I think... Here's a God whose word matters. And he just. 
And he just, he just peace be still. I, I, don't even think, I don't even think he got up. I think he's like, peace be still. And, and the minute he says this, it's just, I mean, that's what he does in the course of the storm you're in if you take him at his word. Quit worrying. It's doing you no good. And this is, this is what um, Warren Wearsby said. I like the quote. The boat cannot go down because Jesus is on board. In life, you come to a place where you're either going into a storm or out of one. It's either a storm of obedience or disobedience. It doesn't matter. Are you tired yet? Are you scared? Have you exhausted all of your natural ability? Are you ready to have a relationship with a God whose word matters? Are you ready to apply that word by faith? This is a God who, when he speaks, he controls the natural world, the supernatural world. He controls sickness. He controls death. I'll tell you what. If you're hard in soil this morning, in the parable of the soils, and you just want to go home, I'll make it easy for you. I'll finish quickly. You go home. And you tell me what you're going to do in the middle of your storm when you run out of all of your natural ability. Because I got news for you. If you're going to live on this earth, you're going to be going into a storm or coming out of one. That's life. And God is bringing those storms for you to come to the end of yourself. And if you want to take on a fight with God, your arms are too short. You're, you're taking on a God who holds the heavens in the span of his hand. And you're on the little tiny blue, blue marble in one of the solar systems in one of the billions of galaxies. You're a gnat on the butt of an elephant. Good luck winning that fight. And yet the God who has come to tell you he loves you and that his word is for you and not against you is waiting for you to say, Lord, save me. And he will. And he will bring a peace that surpasses all understanding even in the midst of the storm. Because his word matters and his word is to be obeyed.